Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest who I've been looking forward to having on for quite a while now. He's a man of many talents. He's a writer, he's an author, he's got multiple books, and he also is the editor of a magazine, Man's World, which you can check out. Raw Egg Nationalist, thank you for joining me, man. Uh, it's a pleasure, Oron. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you've got a lot of projects going on. And the thing I wanted to talk about here today is a piece that you did recently for the American mind. But before we get too deep in the weeds with all that, for people who aren't aware, how did you become the raw egg nationalist? I mean, I've seen you everywhere. You've been on Tucker Carlson and everything at this point. How did all this happen? Yeah, it was a it was a, a wonderful, wonderful mistake. I think it was just uh, <laughs> there was no no planning behind it. I was just a Twitter anon a bit of a lurker and um beginning of 2020 i started posting i got behind this hashtag raw egg nationalism because people were people were starting to knock back raw eggs and um and talk about you know doing doing that as a kind of political movement as a rejection of um a rejection of the current sort of um status quo which is to be dependent and to be unwell and unhealthy and unhappy um and uh i decided to write a cookbook uh, raw egg nationalism in theory and practice which i wrote in the summer of 2020 it was a free pdf and then people wanted it to be a paperback and then it became a hardback um glossy sort of uh coffee table cookbook and it's all it's all just been really a bit of a blur since then i've written uh, multiple books uh featured in the the tucker carlson documentary the end of men which came out in uh october i think it was and it's just been it's just been crazy yeah, it's funny because I, I started posting on Twitter about the same time. So it, it's crazy to see so many people from the Anon sphere kind of move into so many different mainstream areas. It's it's pretty funny. Now, obviously, a lot of people, you know, raw eggs, uh, There there's been I've, uh, some grumbling from a lot of, uh, you know, different new right outlets or people who kind of want, want the right to be very serious and, and policy driven uh, about lifestyle uh, rightism, like there, oh, there, there's these lifestyle brands out there, and they're they're diluting things, and they're making people unserious. W what do you think about that kind of criticism? People coming after you know people like yourself uh, about the things you're doing. I I think a lot of people who make these criticisms don't really know what I'm talking about, and I don't think they've paid very much attention. I think they they see the name Rorik Nationalist, and and you know maybe they see some of the things I post, and they think oh it's 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 not serious, but it's deadly serious. And um, and and you know I I I think I think that the the health of individuals today is is um should be a central plank i think of the of any kind of new right i mean i think it's i think it's a matter of national it's a matter of national importance it's a national imperative that that um that people get healthy because I, a nation is only as healthy as the people of which it's composed and we are very very sick today people are extremely unwell and it's a huge burden in so many different ways and it also prevents it also prevents effective political mobilization. It prevents there being, uh, I think, an effective, an effective alternative. It prevents an effective alternative from emerging. And uh, so I, I don't think it's unserious at all. In fact, I think it's, it's something that's been neglected for too long by the right, uh, as, as well as other things like environmentalism, for instance. I mean, I'm a very, very, very strong advocate of environmentalism, and I, I, I see no reason why conservatives shouldn't care about the environment. I think that um, that really what this is actually is is, is a big corrective uh, uh, for for the, for the right wing for the conservative movement. Uh, you know, we've we've ignored a lot of very very serious problems for a long time, and now now they're actually you know they've reached the stage where they're actually quite disabling, and we need to do something about it. No, I agree. And I think it's really important. I, I know that, you know, when I'm taking care of myself and I'm in the gym and I'm working out, I think differently. I carry myself differently. I have a different mindset, a different frame, the way I see the world. And it's so funny that so many of these people, often many of the people who are making these kind of comments are people who talk a game about how the right needs to maybe become less political or have, 
you know, other interests or, or, or its politics should come from a, a, a more spiritual or holistic place, which I think, you know, in many ways that's true, but it's so weird that they're so dismissive of one thing that I think pretty much all different cultures that are wise knew, which is that people who are healthy, people who are taking themselves, carry themselves differently. They think differently. They apply different solutions. And so if you change the health and clarify the thinking of many people that will naturally bring them into alignment with a way of thinking that might also then better their political situation. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I mean, I think a lot of people just think that what I'm trying to tell people to do is just to just to eat large quantities of raw eggs and work out. But mm-hmm. I mean, if you read if you read my new book, The Eggs Benedict Option, then you'll see that actually I'm making a comprehensive argument about about breaking the corporate stranglehold on American life, for instance. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the Great Reset. I'm talking about the sort of corporate capture of the globe or the planned corporate capture of the globe. And I think that I think that we can, well, we need to break the corporate capture of the food supply. And I think that you could build a mass movement off the back of reclaiming reclaiming people's access to the to the life-giving foods that our ancestors our ancestors ate that made them strong so it's not um you know it's not it's not something that's individualistic or solipsistic or anything like that i i mean i i really do think that we could build a we could build a mass movement off the back of off the back of a campaign to improve the environment and to improve our access to to the right kinds of foods Absolutely. And I think, you know, we'll get some more into that as we go on. But I want to go ahead and address the the topic of the stream is, you know, the geoengineering. Now, the piece that you wrote about talked about the dangers of people who are kind of these climate change extremists who are very wealthy and trying to take matters in their own hands, which I think is very interesting because, of course, you just started the stream by talking about your interest in taking care of the environment. So you're not approaching this uh, from the position of, oh, we don't need to care about the environment. These people are hippies. It's it's ridiculous. It's not that you don't have concerns about caring for the planet, but you do raise uh, some very alarming issues when it comes to the efforts that individuals are taking uh, without any kind of real government oversight or any kind of understanding of the ramifications of what they might be doing. Could you talk about a few of these examples of people kind of going road rogue and taking this geoengineering into their own hands yeah of course of course so the piece was inspired by the news um that came out recently just just around about christmas it was either just before christmas or 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 slightly after between christmas and new year Uh, an american startup called make sunsets uh, announced that they had been uh, they had done some trial launches of helium balloons in Mexico in April of last year. And these helium balloons had been loaded with sulfur dioxide uh, and let off, uh, released off into the off into the sky to um, to sort of, uh, they, they would open up basically at a certain altitude and release the sulfur dioxide. And the thinking was that this would... Uh, that if this was done on a, on a large scale, I mean, these were just test launches. If this was done on a large scale, then what you could do is you could actually cool the climate. Um, so this was, I mean, this was just a test test launch, but they'd done it with nobody's authorization. Um, uh, and, and as I say, it's a startup and they've got big plans. They, they, they want to, um, they want to get into this on a large scale. They're crowdfunding. They have a website, makesunsets.com, uh, where you can actually go and buy c- what they call cooling credits. So you can pay for the sulfur dioxide that will go into these helium balloons that they're going to, uh, or that they want to release on a mass scale. So um, this is this is uh, you know pretty pretty alarming, and uh, they've they've got nobody's authorization to do this. Um, they based the idea on a on a white paper that was published in 2018 that actually warned that people could do this kind of thing. So the white paper was published as a warning, and it said uh, it was published by I think uh, uh, one of the schools at Harvard, and um, it warned that ordinary people, you know, 
could could do this kind of thing without actually any great um, expenditure. So you can buy a helium balloon, uh, the kind of helium balloon that they used for not a lot of money, and sulfur dioxide isn't expensive either. And you could um, basically jerry-rig uh, uh, one of these sort of uh, atmosphere-altering balloons for maybe $60. Uh, and the paper said, you know, if, if lots of people did this, then potentially you could actually alter the climate on a global scale. Uh, one of the things that uh, volcanoes release is sulfur dioxide. So that's why sulfur dioxide was was chosen, because when volcanoes erupt, um, it has a cooling effect. We, we, all, we all know this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Mount, Mount Pinatuba, I think, which erupted in the Philippines in 1991, released 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide, and that had a global cooling effect as a result. So that's what they're trying to mimic, essentially. Um, uh, but this isn't the first time that this has happened, and this is the, this is the very interesting thing. So in... Um, I think it was... When was it? 20, it was 2012... Uh, this slightly mad American entrepreneur called Russ George uh, sailed off uh, off from somewhere like Vancouver out into the waters off British Columbia uh, in a big ship uh, with 100 tons of uh, iron sulfate and dropped it in the sea. And his thinking was that he would, he would stimulate an artificial algal bloom off the coast. And what that would do is increase fish stocks in the area because fish stocks were low. And um, it was harming as, as well as as well as, you know, being a problem for biodiversity. Then it was also a problem for the local indigenous people who lived um, who lived off the coast of British Columbia. And um, his thinking was that you, you'd, you'd stimulate an algal bloom. The fish would the fish would eat the algal bloom. Uh, and then they, more of them would survive uh, on the journey inland to spawn. More fish would be born and there'd be bigger, larger fish stocks. And that would, um, you know, provide the, the native people with a, with a greater chance of catching more fish. And so they'd be better off. And the other thing that it would do is that the, the algae that weren't eaten by the fish would then sink to the bottom of the ocean, storing carbon. So it's like a carbon capture system as well. Um, now, he'd actually been in consultation with the Canadian government uh, beforehand for some years, I think. And he'd, he'd done some preliminary experiments on a very small scale. But he didn't. Again, he didn't have any. He didn't have any uh, prior authorization to do this. He was just sort of. He just decided because he had money and because he could do it, that he was going to do it because he thought that it was, um, you know, that he would be doing something good for the environment. There was a big scandal as soon as he came back to, um, as soon as he came back to port, and uh, the Canadian government found out what he had done. Then they impounded the boat, I think, and they took his equipment and stuff like that. And then when it when it finally got out, when the when the newspapers got a you know got wind of it, then environmental groups all lined up to uh, to condemn him. Largely, I think, because they were worried that actually he would give them a bad name. But the up but the interesting thing is the upshot was that although the Canadian government wanted to prosecute him, they couldn't find a law to do it under. So he got away with it. He got off scot free. This Russ George chap, and in the intervening ten years there haven't been any there hasn't been any attempt whatsoever to try and prevent other people from doing what russ george did and so we've ended up in a situation where now we've got this startup make sunsets doing basically the same thing and we're still as unprepared to deal with with it as uh, as we were 10 years ago but the problem is that the technology that make sunsets is using is incredibly cheap and this is something that i talk about in the article towards the end is the fact that we have to we should anticipate that extreme environmentalist groups will start doing this. There's no reason. There's no reason why they wouldn't. Yeah, that, that was the part that I thought was really interesting in the piece. Is you, you of course, the, the plan, you know, to cool the earth. We've we've had people like Bill Gates talking about blocking out the sun like a Bond villain, right? So the, this isn't the first time that rich people have thought about how they could possibly interfere with what's going on. And as you pointed out there, there's really no legislation, not that anyone holds people like Bill Gates accountable for anything anyway at this point, but there really is no infrastructure, no legal ramifications. There's no way for people to restrict what's going on here. And so as the climate hysteria builds 
And as it becomes easier and easier for people who maybe aren't mega billionaires to have access to technology that could do this kind of thing, it really does seem like we're not super far away from the ability of some nut job who gets enough people together or, you know, crowdsources enough of this stuff or find some kind of ecological pressure point and thinks that they can solve the world's problems by taking matters into their own hands. And they can go ahead and, you know, uh, enact one of these programs, but having kind of no idea what the ramifications could be. Everyone thinks that they're going to solve this one problem. But for some reason, these people never seem to understand that these systems are far more interconnected than you could possibly imagine. They just go ahead and take the action and damn the consequences, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing is that these people will think, oh, the ends justify the means, of course. And I, I talk in the piece about the fact that obviously climate change has the structure of a um, has a religious structure, essentially the climate change narrative. And so you've got, you know, you've got the you've got the fall story. You've got the you've got the theodicy, the meaning in the face of suffering. You've got the the salvation or the route to salvation. You've also got the eschatology you've got the you know the the approaching end times so i mean people when they are when they are well we know that people when they are uh when they are religiously motivated uh will do just about anything and i think that that's no different with with climate change i think that we it is in many respects a doomsday a doomsday cult and uh i think that we should expect people to do, to behave like doomsday cultists do um but the thing is, the thing is, nobody knows. Nobody has any idea actually what this would do on a on a large scale. So, in the white paper that I talked about, the authors tried to estimate how many how many balloons it would take to lower the global temperatures by 0.1 degrees C. And I think they said something like, I think it's a hundred million or. 200 million but actually i don't think it would be well i mean we don't know that's just that's just um you know that's just sort of speculation based on based on um calculations of how much how much sulfur dioxide that would release and you know as an analogy with a volcanic eruption but the thing is that actually this isn't a volcanic eruption you know it's okay it's similar to a volcanic eruption in certain ways but it's also very different and so we don't actually have any way to know what would happen um, and that is actually that's the official position on geoengineering in general is that while it might offer um, you know a very powerful tool for altering the climate uh, for good or for ill then actually we just don't know there have been no large-scale experiments um, so it, it's totally it's totally virgin territory and um, you know I mean, weather modification technology is something that has existed since at least the 1960s. And that's something I go into a little bit uh, in the article as well. You know, I talk about the fact that in Vietnam, for instance, and, um, uh, you know, the, the Americans, uh, the Americans uh, did all sorts of research into weather modification and actually were able to increase rainfall over the Ho Chi Minh Trail by 30% as a means of trying to disrupt movement of um, movement of personnel and material on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So we've been we've been modifying the weather, yeah, certainly since the 1960s uh, in a determined way, but it's very different to, it's one thing to modify the weather in a small region of, or a, a region of an area, you know, region of Asia, and another thing to modify the the climate i mean the climate is not the weather so yeah it's totally i mean we're totally uh this is this is totally new and and no, nobody knows what's going to happen but i do think that we should definitely anticipate that people are going to do this yeah i think that's correct and i think you're also correct to identify the climate change uh religion as kind of the eschatological module in the progressive meme plex it, it, it's there are many things to that faith but i think it's the one that really does give them the the vision of the end times and, and what needs to kind of occur there what's interesting also is the amount of kind of the general approach of social engineering or in this case environmental engineering you know we just saw a uh, a pandemic sweep the world that seem and it seems very likely that that 
pandemic was, uh, if unintentionally, engineered by people who think who thought they know knew what they were doing. Um, but despite this obvious devastating ramification, it seems like there's been no real pump on the brakes. There, there, there's no lesson to learn here. It seems like people are just bound to continue to think that they can control every aspect of whether you know the climate, the environment, human beings. There, there seems to be no way to break the progressive faith in their ability to engineer humans, the environment, and everything else around them, no matter how many times they cause utter devastation. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 a vicious circle. It's a feedback loop. It's and there doesn't seem to be any, as you say, there doesn't seem to be any way to uh, interfere and and break the loop. I mean, I wrote a piece for National Pulse uh, that came out today about molnupiravir, which is um, Merck's wonder drug, Merck's COVID wonder drug. And there's just been a study released that suggests that this supposed wonder drug is now producing new variants of COVID. Now, molnupiravir works by directly inducing mutations in the virus, right? So it's quite amazing, really, that it was during a time when, you know, there was incredible anxiety about the emergence of new variants that a drug that actually mutates the virus was given an emergency use authorization by the US, by the FDA, by the US government, right? And scientists at the time, very eminent scientists, including uh, scientists on government panels, warned that this new drug had the potential to produce dangerous new variants, that it had the potential for unintended consequences. Um, and they were brushed off at the time. And uh, now here we are a year later, and it looks like it's been confirmed that actually the this um, this drug has done that. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's an it's an allegory in a, in a sense for the entire experience of the of the pandemic. You know, these these uh, consequences, some foreseen, others unforeseen. And um, we don't seem to have learned anything. Yeah, and I think it just speaks to a whole. Like, it feels like the entire progressive movement is based on this need to be able to engineer everything, right? It's all about again, it's all about progress. And without the the miracle and myth of modern progress, the whole thing falls apart. If you mean if you can't immunize the Ascaton, if you can't manufacture utopia, then there's no reason to keep that coalition together. And so, even as we continue to see the severe drawbacks in so many different areas of life from this ideology of engineering every solution, we under we seem to just, there's no way to stop it because it's essential for them to continue to move forward. Now, one thing I talk a lot about is framing. And it's very interesting because like you said at the beginning, you are someone who cares about the environment. You do think that environmentalism should be part of a right-wing movement. It's a natural place for environmentalism to exist. But we also can understand here this left-wing stranglehold on the term. It's always really dangerous when the right attempts to adopt issues from the left because they almost always also adopt the framing of the left and then end up encouraging the points of the left. So something I'm interested in is what do you think a right-wing approach to environmentalism looks like that acknowledges the duties of people and the essential nature of taking care of the environment as someone of the right, but does so without feeding the hysteria and the, the religious nature of kind of these climate zealots? Yeah, well, I, th I think that what we have to do is we have to reclaim uh, environmentalism from or we have to separate environmentalism from all of this climate crisis stuff. Mm. I think that that's the, I think that's the fundamental, the fundamental thing that we need to do, because you see a lot of, you see a lot of, of um, that a lot of people on the right have have totally given into, have totally given into the narrative. They don't have anything else to offer. But actually, I think what we need to do is we need to root, we need to root environmentalism in local problems. Um, because what we've done is we've the thing about climate change is that because it's everywhere it's nowhere so 
what that means in a sense is that we have to give up because we are somewhere because you're somewhere because i'm somewhere as an individual and because our communities are somewhere then what we actually have to do is we have to surrender our agency to these supranational institutions we have to trust supranational bodies to deal with climate change because actually it exists on a scale that none of us can really sort of comprehend or grasp whereas actually a lot of these a lot of the of the problems that i think are really pressing the kind of problems that tucker carlson highlights in the end of men for instance the fertility crisis that's being caused by massive environmental pollution with chemicals like phthalates uh pfas other endocrine disruptors you know these are local problems it's it's your local river it's your local lake it's it's the factory that is dumping uh effluent into the river it's it's the farmer who isn't um who isn't properly dealing with runoff it's all sorts of it's all sorts of local stuff that actually that actually people if they thought of environmentalism in local terms rather than just as this sort of um, planetary scale problem then maybe they could get a better grasp on and maybe they could maybe they could start to sort of mobilize themselves uh you know to sort out these problems because they're not getting sorted out at the moment and actually people don't even seem to don't even really seem to have any awareness of them there's just this one overriding existential problem which is climate change and the thing is that the rhetoric is just getting worse and worse i mean i've i've written also for the american mind about this insane new book by this woman called gaia vince who is a world economic forum approved um lunatic and uh it's called nomad century and basically she makes the argument that because climate change is going to take place uh unavoidably it's it's unavoidable now uh and not only is it unavoidable it's going to be catastrophic um large portions of the globe mainly the third world are going to become uninhabitable within the next few decades i mean maybe within 20 years mm. uh so that means that billions hundreds of millions if not billions of people are going to have to migrate and since that is foreseeable what we need to do is we need to say to them you've got to come here now so that we can you know minimize their suffering as much as possible um you know so so and and this is a narrative that is that is definitely gaining that is definitely gaining ground i mean it was it was in evidence at the uh, world economic forum meeting in davos you heard Al Gore talking about the coming wave of billions of climate migrants who would make it um, who would make it impossible for Western nations to govern themselves properly. He said something about sort of like it would make it. I can't remember the exact words he used, but it was basically that our our ability to self govern would collapse under the weight of billions of people coming from the third world. I mean, that's you know, it's 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 a threat as much as anything else. But it's yes, I mean, we we need to we need to reject the narrative that's what we need to do and and that's a there's a risk there there's a risk there because a lot of people will think oh this is crazy if you reject the climate change narrative you know you're you're dooming you're dooming the earth but the thing is um i don't see that there's any i don't see that there's any other way to enge to engage with it fruitfully i think i think once you start to engage with it you're caught in it um but what 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 I think conservatives need to say is, look, this is madness. But actually, we do care about the environment. We do care about um, the state of the planet. We should stop polluting as much as we are. We should be better stewards of the environment. We should we should care about the air and the water and the land um, because most conservatives don't. Most conservatives are totally indifferent to it. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing. No matter what the issue is, the answer is always uh, more migrants, right? Like that's, you know, you, you oh, there's a fertility crisis. You're not, uh, you don't have below replacement birth rates, more migrants. Oh, there's a climate change crisis. Well, there's only one solution. You have to have more migrants. Well, there's a, you know, there, there's a labor shortage because corporations are unwilling to pay people a living wage. So they could, I don't know, have children and buy better food. Well, there's only one solution 
more migrants in your country, right? It's, it's, it's this amazing panacea that solves all problems for progressives. But I, I do like your answer a lot because, uh, you know, the, that localism, I think, is a really, I think that's got to be critical ap- across all parts of a right wing solution. But the, but for environmentalism, I think that's particularly good because, for instance, I live in, in Florida and of course, waterways are a big deal here. Beaches, all that stuff is a huge part of the economy and the, and the lifestyle, just your day to day living. And there is a uh, you know river that runs through the area that was polluted because of actions taken by the government. And because of that, there's just this horrible amount of fish death and everything in the area. The waterways were, were impassable. It was really horrible. And what you saw was uh, a lot of people in the area from the left and the right, this broke political barriers. Everyone came together and said, look, this is a specific problem affecting my community with a specific cause that we can trace directly and we can take specific action. And they were able to lobby the governor and get things changed and take action based directly on that thing. And so by localizing the problem, not only are you making it actionable, you're taking it away. It doesn't, it's not, it's not climate change, some amorphous thing out in the middle of nowhere to donate money to. It's a very specific problem with a very specific cause that everyone can rally to. And you can actually break down some of those political barriers because everybody has to live in this, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden conservatives and liberals are standing next to each other, demanding a change that's necessary to better the environment and the lives of kind of everyone around them. So, so I think that that localization is a really, good point it also robs the left of these giant leviathan entities or leviathan problems that require leviathan solutions right the the one of the powers of the left is really just scaling things up to a point where no one can have accountability everything is run by this kind of oligarchy this bureaucratic diffuse power no one can be held accountable no one can actually show and produce results it all just kind of uh, disappears into this uh you know this giant uh, machine that no one really understands but is supposed to be the only solution to the problem but by taking it down dismantling it and bringing it kind of into that local mindset you really can change the trajectory of, of the way everyone's approaching this, which I think also feeds kind of in your point then about the food supply, right? Because, because this uh, really has an impact across every dimension of our life. These giant bureaucratic massified organizations just handle everything and they always pull things to the left. And so that's, I think also applies to a, you know, a good a point I think you make about the food supply is getting it away from these massive corporations and again, bring it into a more local context where a, a more naturally right-wing solution might emerge. Yeah. I mean, we should be in no doubt what the, what the great reset is. I mean, the great reset, certainly in the domain of food will involve the total corporate capture of the food supply. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that is, that is the only way that you are going to feed 10 billion people which is the projected global population in 2050 that's the only way that you're going to feed 10 billion people a plant-based diet what you need to do that is you need new genetically modified high yield uh grains and other crops so they will be patented and owned by corporations just like the gmo crops are today just like the crops that monsanto owns um and other companies the 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 handful of other companies five or six companies that totally monopolize the gmo seed market and the seed market in general um and all of these novel forms of protein plant-based meats lab-grown meat um precision ferment precision fermented uh products like uh, fermented dairy and all that kind of stuff all of these processes can be owned and that's why they're so attractive to corporations, because, you know, you can vertically integrate beef production uh, right from right from the farm to the to the plate, essentially. But there are certain things you can't own um, or that you can't patent that you can't totally own. I mean, you can't patent a cow. You can't patent an egg, uh, but you can patent lab grown beef and plant-based eggs and that's what these companies are doing um so the great reset way the 
the left's monolithic um, uh, or the globalist monolithic approach is, yes, is just to surrender control of the food supply to these totally unaccountable entities, which have already done so much to harm people. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, you know, all you, all you need to do is look at the history of the 20th century and, and, and the history of, of, of people's health and of what has happened to the food supply. Um, and, and that should set alarm bells ringing. I mean, these are the people who have, who have made us sicker and unhealthier and unhappier uh, and dependent on drugs in a way that we've never been before in our history. And we're supposed to give everything over to them and, and um, expect them to look after us. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But that is what they're advocating. That is the future that they want. If we, if we end up totally giving up uh, consumption of animal products, that is the future that we'll, be, uh, that we'll have in store for us. Yeah, I think your point about the the ability to patent something being a, a huge motivating factor is a really good one. And I also wonder if the breakdown in supply lines is also a big part of this, right? Kind of as they're building these massified uh, structures, they also tend to be picking people not based on their aptitude necessarily. And so we've seen in many different areas from, you know, transportation to all kinds of stuff that we're just not getting things where they need to be anymore. And these, you know, the entire system is this just in time, you know, delivery and we're just, we're no longer making this happen anymore. And so the, the ability to kind of have these, uh, you know, these plant produced, you know, patented, uh, foodstuffs like you're talking about means that maybe they can get people more calories over time, even if they're not particularly you know healthy. I wonder. I mean, you know, the guy who invented dwarf wheat, you know, got a like a Nobel Prize for it. D- do you think that was the beginning of the end? Is is genetic engineering in the food stock always going to end with pushing the the system and the planet kind of beyond its load bearing capacity, or are there ways that we can this can be done without necessarily corrupting uh kind of the people's healthy living well i mean of of course we've always or for a long time we've practiced selective breeding Mm. and um crossbreeding and things like that so we have we have um you know we have been familiar with a kind of crude form of genetic engineering for a long time but it's a but it's a much gentler form of of genetic engineering with all sorts of built-in fail-safe devices. Um, uh, you can only you can only intervene so much when you're trying to get two different animals to breed. You know, with two different animals with um, desirable characteristics, it's not the same as creating a um, some kind of chemical or synthetic means to alter uh, genes at directly you know at the level of base pairs uh that's that's something totally different and and again like i was saying with the you know with the molnupiravir this is we don't really know what we're doing this is a this is virgin science and to think to think that what we might do is end up feeding everyone on the planet um gmo food regularly you know so so your diet would be full of gmo food all the time when we don't even really know what the long-term consequences of consumption of genetic modified food are so it's it's reckless again it's it's this it's this foolish very foolish belief in naive belief in progress that is also bolstered by the potential to make huge amounts of money i mean that's the that's the thing that we need to that we also need to um we also need to um, keep in our sight is that it's not simply a naive faith, faith in progress. It is also, it is also making certain people a lot of money. Genetic engineering and it will offers the potential to um, you know transfer complete control of the food supply to corporations. But I I think I think that all of these technologies need to be need to be used um, in a very very um circumscribed manner and we need to we need to put the brakes on and we need to um we need to 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 study them as much as possible because there have there have already been incidents with genetic engineering uh i talk about one in the book in the eggs benedict option there was a 
there was a Japanese company called, or there is a Japanese company called Showa Denko, which produced tryptophan. So tryptophan is an amino acid. They produce tryptophan supplements. And um, uh, you produce amino acid supplements basically using microbes in a big vat. And you get them, you know, you feed, you give them the food stuff and they produce amino acids that you then filter off. One day, and I think this was in the late 80s, maybe 88, 89, something like that, they decided to use genetically modified, crudely genetically modified bacteria that would produce more tryptophan, you know, per, per whatever gram or kilogram of, of food that they were, that they were given. So um, they, they did this and they didn't really tell anybody. And then all of a sudden people started developing this very, 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 very rare um neurological disease that killed mm. i think killed dozens maybe even hundreds of people eventually anyway they managed to figure out that it was the that it was the tryptophan supplement that these people had been taking um but uh Shobodenko managed to destroy the uh, vats in which they'd created the supplement using these gmo bacteria so there was never a proper investigation but um it ju- it just goes to show that actually we we just don't understand enough yet to unleash this on a on a large scale and and the potential the potential consequences could be well i mean we don't know but they could they they could be they could be very very bad indeed um, and we already know for instance with things like genetically modified canola so most canola oil is made using gmo plants in north america and that's one of one of many reasons not to consume canola oil. But we already know from scientific studies that GM, the, the genes from genetically modified canola have already pla- have already passed to wild varieties and to other plants um, v- via some kind of mechanism that we don't understand. So, you know, I mean, yeah, we, we're we are in uncharted territory. Sure. So speaking of. You, you know, corporations being able to control the entire food supply and these kind of unintended consequences. There was that story, of course, and we all know that eggs have just skyrocketed in price, especially in in certain regions of America. I don't I don't know what it's like over in the UK with eggs, but in America, it's gotten very wild. And of course, there was that story that came out that many people believe that the uh, the feed given to chickens. Uh, by I believe Purdue it was like the it was like the big manufacturer That's of that Purina. Purina Purina thank you thank you yeah. thank you uh, but they but they were uh, impacting the ability of these chickens to lay and so many people who were uh, expecting to rely on their own personal chickens in order to kind of supplement this this diet with the extreme costs of eggs now suddenly we're getting no eggs out of their chickens. Do, do you lend any credence to that? Or, or at the very least, I guess it speaks to the possibility of how having one central supplier or company can just completely warp the, the food supply if someone wants to, right? Well, the interesting thing about this uh, Purina feed is that it had been linked, Purina feed had been linked to uh, cow deaths before. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's a possibility. I don't, I don't think that people are just making this up. Um, necessarily but um it's it's one of these things that just won't get investigated properly there's no you know there's never any clarity about these things it's like all of these mysterious fires and incidents at chicken farms and uh food processing facilities that have taken place over the last three years i mean there's a spreadsheet going around and there have been hundreds of them hundreds of them uh and you know tucker carlson talked about this last monday i think um Mm -hmm when he was talking about eggs you know it's it's not even treated as a as a matter of um a matter for investigation by the federal government and you you think they would you'd think that that ensuring um adequate protection for the food supply that ensuring the um the sort of um the integrity of the food supply would be a what should be a matter of of national priority and if there is something strange going on if there are people potentially sabotaging the food supply in various different ways then then surely you'd want to do something about it but there's just uh just cricket so far which is which is um you know it's pretty it's pretty disheartening and you see and the, the thing is as well that you actually see it um 
you're seeing this kind of thing elsewhere. It's not just in the U.S., although most of it seems to be happening in the U.S. So there was a there was a huge fire in New Zealand um, last week at the nation's largest egg producing farm. Seventy five thousand hens died. And there's again, there's a there's an egg supply problem in New Zealand as well. It all um, it all looks very suspicious. And until but sadly, until somebody actually starts to look into these things properly, then uh, we can only really speculate. Yeah, and you hate that because obviously no one wants to be kooky. No one wants to be out there just, you know, jumping at shadows. But if there's one thing we've learned over the last few years, it's that the distance between a right wing conspiracy theory and a mainstream media headline is a few months. Right. So you, know, you, you really have to you have to wonder in these scenarios. And if people were doing their jobs, you wouldn't have to wonder. But of course, our security apparatus, you know, we have to hear, especially here in America, about the you know national security. Everything's a matter of national security. You know, they've got to chase down parents who are protesting at school board meetings because they don't want you know trans ideology taught to their kids or you know we have to spend a bunch of time arresting people for making memes on the internet those are all key matters of national security but you know securing the food supply of the people living in the nation don't have time for it you know the best we can do is speculate right yeah yeah it's a, it's a, it's a case of um of uh of really quite twisted priorities i think um and yeah i mean again this should this should be a political issue you could you could actually make a lot of political hay uh if you if you had a determined some determined people who really sort of pursued this as a you know as a as a line of uh political inquiry i mean people would get behind it i think that you could i think you could quite easily convince people that actually food is a national security issue food is a is a is a is an issue of national priority i mean you know that happened in the 1950s when um president eisenhower had a heart attack um that launched a, a huge campaign about um heart disease for instance you know i mean there's no there's no reason why the health of the nation can't be um can't be a political issue it should be a political issue yeah, you would think if you had any kind of real opposition to the globalists, you would you would have these kinds of things, right? Wouldn't it be great to have actual opposition parties? But you're exactly right that you know these most people. This is what really hits them, right? Their 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 neighbor, their father, their their children. You know, they they have bad health, they have poor health, they have expensive health care, or they're dying from this kind of thing. You know, people are having a much, much harder time affording food. You know, the left loves to laugh at this stuff anytime the right brings it up. It's, oh, the conspiracy theories. Oh, what are you, what are you talking about? The price of milk? You know, do you remember that when the, the White House was mocking people for uh, wanting to be able to afford milk? And now we're in this scenario where everyone's you know, budget is just getting completely destroyed due to food costs. This should, like you said, be a very easy, should be a softball for any people who really wanted to get serious about, you know, making a political hay and actually making gains in this kind of area. But for some reason, you know, it, it just never seems to get any traction from the political parties that are supposed to actually be supplying, you know, some kind of opposition to what's going on. Uh, but guys, we're going to be wrapping up here soon. If you have any questions for myself or the Raw Ag Nationalists, now is a good time to go ahead and get them in. But before we part ways, I wanted to ask you, you know, I know you, you've got all kinds of health advice and people, you know, we'll, we'll talk about where they can find all your, your, uh, your work here soon. But for people who are wanting to eat healthier, um, what are maybe like three top things that they should be uh, looking out for when they're thinking about what they're eating, where they're getting their food, those kind of things. Well, I think increasingly, I think that the best thing, the best intervention you can make, the first thing you should do is cut out processed food. Uh, processed food is, is just terrible for you. And it, and it contains all sorts of, all sorts of horrible, horrible things like vegetable oil, uh, huge amounts of, of, of hidden sugars, high fructose corn syrup and that's before you even before you even get on to the the flavorings and colorings and you know artificial compounds uh so processed food 
uh, people eat a lot of processed food. You know, people eat a significant uh, a significant amount of people's calories daily come from processed food. So from pre-made food that you buy that's in plastic wrapping. That's the best way to describe processed food generally. If you can if you can cut out processed food as much as possible, if not entirely, and start to cook and prepare your own food yourself using fresh whole ingredients then you will you will have gone a long way towards sorting out your health that's those those two things definitely i think are are maybe the first two things that you should do cut out processed food and um, start preparing all, all or as much of your food yourself as possible um the third thing i suppose you ought to do is you ought to really try to focus your diet on nutrient dense animal foods so i know things like liver aren't and organs aren't particularly palatable but um if you can consume maybe a little bit of liver once a week if you can stomach it and in fact if you learn how to cook you can make liver very palatable so that's another reason why you should learn to cook because actually you can make these you can make these um nutrient dense animal foods much more palatable but eggs certainly eggs are incredibly palatable uh, fattier cuts of meat dairy of course da- dairy is dairy is good quality dairy we're talking good quality dairy um then you know you're you're back on you're back on track basically with the way that your ancestors used to eat and uh that's really that's really what we should all be doing we should all be trying to eat much more in the manner of our ancestors uh than we do today yeah i'm from the south so we do have liver and onions but you know they bread it and fry it beforehand so that might not be the optimum preparation <laughs> for liver but it is a good way to get it down if you're trying to to do that all right, guys. Well, we really appreciate everyone coming by. Uh, Rug Nationalist, where can everyone find your work? I know you got a lot going on, so just go ahead and tell people what they should be looking for. Uh, so go to rawegnationalist.com, um, which has links to all of my all of my work and uh, media appearances, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at babygravy9. Um, and uh, Man's World, the magazine that I um, produce, that has a website as well. That's mansworldmag.org. So uh, between those three places, you should be able to keep up with everything that I do. Absolutely. And yeah, I've got a, I've got an article somewhere in that back catalog. So make sure that you check that out, guys. All right. Well, again, I want to thank Raw Egg Nationalists. I want to thank everybody who came by today. And of course, if this is your first time at the channel, please go ahead and subscribe. If you have not done so, you know that these episodes are now also available on all the major podcast platforms. So go ahead and check out the Warren McIntyre show on Apple, Spotify, all that stuff. You go ahead and leave a rating review. If you go there, it really helps. We really appreciate it. So thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.